So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 33 together this morning. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king on war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's a phrase that I heard a lot growing up as a young person. Uh, It's not really a phrase, it's actually a term. And um, the term is poser. Um, And... I had to really give kind of a definition uh, of this for the first service, just to kind of, you know, get everybody up to speed on what that is. You know, I, u- I used it. I didn't, I wasn't, anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a poser is a, well, I'll give you a definition here. A poser is a person who pretends to be a member of a group that they are not actually a member of. For example, by adopting the dress, mannerisms, or speech patterns etc. Uh, if you want it's an example of it used in a sentence, this should make it real clear for you. Here you go. He is such a poser, right? Look at that poser. There you go. Does that help? Um, there's like nothing worse for a young person who's trying really hard to be cool than to be called a poser. And um, it's something that gets thrown out a lot for that reason, you know, like, they're lame, they don't really, you know, they're not, it's not real, they're not real, it's just a poser or whatever. And this idea extends far beyond just just young people and growing up and this phrase, the way we hear it on schoolyards. Um, This idea of, uh, of sort of pretending to be something that you're not and getting called out on it is something happens a lot of time. I'm going to change this slide because I, I didn't, I left this up for like the first half of my sermon, first service, and it made me look bad. So I'm going to just, there we go. Um, People were like, saw it on the TV and were like, I'm glad he's admitting it, but um, there was a, you know, I was thinking about this in relation to Veterans Day uh, this morning as we were worshiping because um, uh, I was thinking about Mike Vadiat, who passed away several weeks ago, and Mike um, was um, a retired gentleman. Um, He was in the military, and he had purchased um, a new uniform that was kind of like size to fit him now, and he wore it every Veterans Day, and he came in his uniform, and it was awesome, and he would stand up, and everybody stood up, and I remember the first time that I was here as a a pastor, and he stood up. I was like, is that that guy's like, he's like in the military, you know, like right now, and and then I went and talked to him, and he was kind of saying how he got it, but um, um, it's so cool that, that like, to see that, and, um, and it, it, but the, the way that that works, I mean, you can't, you know, it wasn't like I saw him do that, and I was like, oh, I'm going to go get one of those. That'd be cool, right? Um, 
because it's, you actually can't do that, uh, I've discovered. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but, but you can't do it for real. And uh, that's because they passed a law, the Stolen Valor Law in 2013. And this law says that people can't pretend to be part of our armed forces, like a veteran, or currently in the forces, and um, in order to gain uh, benefits, to, to get any kind of monetary or personal gain of any kind. And that's because people go out in uniforms and, uh, and they don't even go to really important places. They go to like airports and malls and stuff like that. And they just go to public places and they wear military uniforms and they do it so they can get discounts, so people can treat them well, so people uh, uh, compliment them and stuff. And there are these, these videos that, that you kind of see if you look for them on YouTube. And uh, they're kind of satisfying to watch because basically it's like a video where somebody, they like looked at the patches and they asked them some questions and they realized this person isn't really in the military. And then everybody just kind of turns on them. And they're like, how could you do this? How dare you, you know? Like, and so now it's against the law to do this. Uh, Congress passed a law uh, in order to make that the case. Um, and so this idea is greatly offensive to us, right? The, the idea that somebody would simply put on an outfit and then pretend like they did this thing. Why? Why is it so offensive to us? It's offensive to us because these are people who have served, people who have risked their lives, who have sacrificed uh, for all the rest of us who haven't. And to pretend to be one of them and try to gain the benefit and the respect that comes with that without having done it is deeply offensive to us, um, as I think it should be. Uh, but it's easy to do, and people can do it, right? As Jesus is talking to these, these people that are gathered around him, it says great crowds are gathering around him. This isn't just the disciples. This is one of those big gatherings. A lot of these people are people who would potentially become disciples. And so Jesus says in one of his more cautionary uh, uh, passages, really, he, he says to them that they need to carefully think about what they're willing to do to be his disciple. Are you willing to count the cost of being my disciple, is what he says in this passage. I don't know if you've ever known anyone who's um, like started building something and didn't have the, the resources to finish it. I know that all too well, because as I often talk about, I, I like to think more was kind of tricked into kind of buying a house when I moved here um, on what was described as really the perfect street, you know, only to find that, that, that my neighbor their house was under construction, and it had been in that exact way for like two years. Um, and so for like a year and a half that we lived there, you know, it didn't change at all. The honey bucket was still in the driveway. It was still like, they, they eventually got a garage door, which was pretty nice, because then my kids stopped wandering in there. But, um, but it was like, I mean, literally nothing changed. And the reason was because there had been a house fire, and the, and the woman who lived there had gotten the money, and then her and her contractor basically mismanaged that money, and as a result, ran out, and they just couldn't build anymore, and that was it. It just stayed there. Neighbors were not very happy, right? Uh, not very happy about that at all. Uh, so people actually do this. They actually start things like this without counting the cost or really being wise with it, and then where are they at that point? You can't live in a house that's half-built, believe it or not. Uh, you can't live in an environment like that. So all the money that you've invested into it is gone. You get no benefit. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Think about this before you step into it, before you jump into it. And he begins by talking about families, by talking about denying the people in your own family and ask the question, are you willing to do that in order to follow me? This is one of the most controversial statements that Jesus has ever, will ever make. 
And it's controversial because people will say it contradicts other things that Jesus says. People will often say, who are opponents sort of of Christianity or disbelievers don't believe, they'll say, they'll say, how can this Jesus preach love and then preach hate against one's family? And I've asked people who, who struggle with this and who really believe that, 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 that Jesus intended this to be the exact opposite of his messages on love. I'd say, so what is it that you think that he's preaching here, that he's communicating? You know, is, is he really going around trying to amass a group of disciples who hate families? who like hate their own families? Like what's the goal in that? I mean, what exactly are you worried that he's trying to do? Well, the reason people worry about this, and it's kind of like a, well, it makes sense, it's understandable, is we worry about any person who is sort of a charismatic personality, who is able to gather followers around them and then tell those people to deny one of the basic things that we accept as a society. And there is no more basic thing that we accept I would say as a society, than the idea that family comes first. We, not be, we, we may not be good at it as a society, but we believe that family is the most important thing. We say family is the most important thing. We, we, we say that putting family first, absolutely. And, and I will say, honestly, that of all the people that I've known who have lost all kinds of things in life, who have lost money, who have lost jobs, who have lost the ability to do certain things that they're passionate about, I will say I've never seen people grieve like I've seen them grieve when they lose family. And so, so Jesus tells people something that, that really alarms those who don't agree with him. Why? Because we think of religious zealots, people who go around saying, ignore that thing that everyone else in society inherently believes. Well, if that's the beginning, what else is he going to tell them to ignore? Is he going to tell them to ignore the command not to murder? The command to uh, not hate their enemies? What else is he going to call them to do that's just as crazy as this thing? And that's why people will accuse Jesus of, of actually wanting people to hate they're family members, objectively speaking. Much of the time when we discuss family in the church, it's sort of extremes. There's these two extremes. One extreme is that we equate the idea of a good family, of a strong family, with pleasing the Lord, with living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Some would say that it's sort of the essential end goal of the believer. Having a strong family is the same as living well for God. Even if your own personal faith isn't the best, as long as you have a strong family, your efforts are pleasing to the Lord. Even if you and the people in your household don't really seem all that humble, right? All that broken, those sinners who need God's forgiveness. It's okay if people look at your family and they say, maybe even, maybe these people still they're, they're exactly what we're called to be, what we ought to be like. We say not everyone is supposed to be hopelessly dependent on God's grace for their lives. A good family, a strong family, is that rare thing that if the church was full of those things, then we wouldn't even really need to worry so much about how we're all personally, individually doing for the Lord because we will have done such a good job raising one another in these perfect families that we will all be fine, right? Right? 
this is one extreme that you can often hear uh, talked about in the church, whether from a pulpit in teaching the Bible or just amongst people in the church. The idea that when we talk about family, we make it the end goal of the Christian life. And the other extreme, though, is kind of the opposite. We take a couple of of verses in the New Testament, uh, things in epistles, things by people like Paul, and we say, oh, well, actually, family is is bad. It's wrong, right? It it, it requires so much of you that if you really want to live as God's called you to live, if you want to be really serious and devoted about your faith, you can't have a family, you can't have people to invest in, and if you do have a family, they'll understand that you're never there or that you're never invested in them because you have other bigger things to worry about, you know, for this world or for the kingdom, right? So we talk about it in extremes. It's, it's either this objectively good thing or this thing that we need to be wary of and cautious of. Um, and so it's hard to talk about it. But, but the truth of it, the, the, I think, fairly undeniable truth is that family is this institution that God, from the beginning, chooses to use in our lives in a way that that nothing else is going to be used. It is essentially the context by which we will live our lives. God, God creates Adam, and then he says, it's not good for him to be alone, and he gives him Eve. He doesn't just give him Eve so they could have, like, the best perfect marriage ever and not have it ruined with kids. No. He says, be fruitful and multiply, and that's what they do. He calls them to cultivate and to work. Uh, he calls them to be constructive together, and he calls them to do it as a, as a family. And as their children will have children, and they will have children, the idea is that people will grow up in these units called families, and and those families will form communities. And that these families are going to fundamentally be the way that we, more than almost anything else, are shaped. And if you're at all self-aware, whether you love or hate your family, if you're at all self-aware, you can't deny that that's true. That our families shape us in a way that nothing else does, that nothing else can. Some of us lament that because we are resentful of the way that families we don't like shaped us. The way that family circumstances, the demands of our family now are shaping us in a way that we don't want to be shaped. And many are very glad and and, and happy about that fact. Family is a reflection of a relational God, a God who exists in the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before we were ever around, he was relating to himself. So, so it makes sense that he would say, you will always be in the context of relationships with other people. There's always going to be more to worry about than just you. That's why the command of Jesus, ultimately, to follow him is summed up in two simple instructions. Love God, love others. If we were not intended to live amongst community and amongst these families, then it would be love God. But it's love God and love others. Because you're always going to be in the context of those other people. Did I mute myself? I'll call you out again. Rather than desire that we find identity as individuals, God's blueprint is that we always, always are going to be functioning in this community. And so family is first and foremost we. And there will not really ever just be 
a me. Now, that's not to say that I won't have a personal relationship with God, but the individualism of our society has even elevated the idea of a personal relationship with God to say that, that it's almost as though we need to be totally independent of other relationships whenever we relate to God in the most meaningful way, right? We, you know, and, and that's how that works. But the truth is that when we look at the Bible, when we look at what this upside down view of things in the kingdom of God looks like, what is so unique about it is that first and foremost, I do not exist for myself. I exist in the context of other people. And family kind of forces that on me, whether I like it or not. It's always going to be we and us. We're tough often on the Jewish culture that Jesus came and did ministry um, amongst. And yet, part of why he uses this example, he points to family, is because they have taken so seriously the call to have strong families. This is a culture in which your family determines everything, the trajectory of your life. Multiple generations lived together. It was an honor and shame culture. There was nothing worse. You could do nothing worse than shame your family by your actions. And you could do nothing better than bring honor to your family. And those things were, connect, were, were, were directly connected to God. Hey, I wonder how God feels about me. It's easy. How does your mom and dad feel about you? That's it. You have shamed me, right? That's like, you have shamed God. You have brought honor to this family. God is pleased with you. It was that simple. These families were everything in a person's life. You didn't often seek to get away from your family. This is why the parable of the prodigal son is such a big deal. The idea of someone who leaves his family and pretends to be be completely separated from them as though they're dead is someone who really does deny everything that God's given them and say, I want to live another way. So these people really valued family. Their identity, if it was rooted in anything, was rooted in family. When you saw a person, you really did see this other group of people that they were a larger part of. And any culture that values family that much is going to be tempted and pulled in the direction of seeing family as an end in and of itself. And this was the struggle then, and this is the struggle now. Because as, as bad as we may be at actually being families in our culture that we live in, we do view it as a foundational part of life. And because of that, we view it as perhaps the primary way that that I, as an individual, can have an identity, can be satisfied, can experience joy, can flourish, can do well. You can't separate me from that. And it becomes the end in itself. Our identity becomes attached to our family. My family is my final exam in terms of how I'm going to prove and show that I'm worth anything. And so for this reason, we get very serious about family. We get very particular about family because we believe that it is above all else, really, an extension of us as individuals. And the temptation is to constantly not have it be about, about us, about we, but have it still sort of be about myself, right? Um, anybody knows this. The moment that their children begin not being the way they wanted them to be in some way, 
you realize how much your expectation and desire was rooted in what you wanted it, how you wanted it for yourself. I wanted to have kids that were like that. I wanted someone to, to see a kid be a certain way and say, that's that person's kid, right? They're a reflection on them. Some of you have yelled this at your kids, right? You are a reflection on me. I mean, uh, Ellie and I became so painfully aware of how much our personal desire was tied into family when we struggled with infertility for years. Because we began to become frustrated, resentful, embittered at God. And when we were honest with ourselves, at least when I was honest with myself, I knew that this had everything to do with personal desire for what I wanted, for me and my expectations, for the life that I had. It didn't have to do with these little people. It didn't have to do with uh, what God wanted to do with my life or how he was going to see me. It had to do with, this is one chance. I get one shot here. And this has always been a part of the picture in my mind. And so without it, I've lost. And in a culture that values family as much as we do as a way of living out who I am as an individual, we exercise a tremendous amount of control over family, right? Uh, we can choose when or when not to have children. Uh, some of our biggest frustrations have to do with, like, I, I have more than I wanted or I have less than I wanted. I have too many boys and not enough girls. I have too many girls, not enough boys. I mean, these things can drive us crazy. Why? Because we can't really control it ever as much as we want to. Which shows us, again, that this seems to continually end up being the end something that is ultimately a reflection of me. And so family in the kingdom of God is ultimately a test in selflessness, in patience and long-suffering. And this is because the longer that you try to live in this context of we, the more it becomes them. And what I mean by that is, in the beginning, it's me. I do what I want. And then it's us, it's we, as a family. You know, we do what we want. But the more you try to live that way, the more you realize most of the time it's like what they want, and that's not what I want. And so then the only way you can really keep going with it is to just say, them. And we becomes them, not in a bad way, in a good way. But this brings to mind then the question of the purpose of this family. What is it intended to do? Is it intended to do something in us and with us, or is it intended to be something that we simply enjoy, that is a part of a satisfying life? There was a philosopher, an ancient philosopher, named Epicurus, and he, uh, it's actually Epicurus, but I can't not say Epicurus because of the website, so there you go. That's what all that school did for me. And uh, his description of, uh, of his outlook on, on life was a pretty good one. He said, life is a pursuit of what he calls the greatest good. Well, that sounds pretty reasonable, right? And here's what he said that greatest good was. To seek tranquility, seems good, which is, and he defines that, it's a good philosopher, like three definitions, freedom from fear, yep, I think that sounds good, an absence of bodily pain, uh-huh, through knowledge of the workings of the world. That's wisdom, basically, right? The longer you live, the more you figure out how things work. You save yourself from pain. That's foolishness. 
and the limits of our desires. Yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty reasonable as well, right? So life is the pursuit of the greatest good, which is freedom from fear, the absence of pain as we grow in wisdom and knowledge of the workings of the world and, and, and then even learning, obviously, to limit our desires because you can't actually pursue the greatest good without letting go of the other lesser goods and pursuing the thing that matters the most. This sounds like a pretty good approach to things. This sounds like most of our approaches to many things. The only problem is he was the father of something called hedonism. And this served as the foundation for what we call the philosophy of hedonism. Now, we associate the word hedonist with a bunch of foolish, reckless people who simply chase every desire and do whatever feels good in the moment without any thought or regard to what it will bring us in the future. But that's not true hedonism. True, skilled, studied, well-practiced, and lived-out hedonism is what Epicurus describes. It is our ability to thoughtfully and carefully live a life that ultimately brings us the greatest amount of satisfaction. And so if family is the context that we, that we live our lives in, whether we like it or not, and if this is the goal of many without even realizing it, then that means that my family is ultimately the thing that I pursue, that I invest in, that I am a part of, so that I can experience the best, the greatest good, the least amount of pain, freedom from fear. It was to this very culture, this very understanding that Jesus spoke these words. He said, and we read in Luke 14, now when these great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus knows that it won't be money that will be the hardest thing for most of these people to give up or to sacrifice. That it won't be power and it won't be respect. That it will ultimately be family. Why? Right? Why give up family? Well, there's two reasons. One, because many of those who followed him would be rejected by their families who see Jesus as the leader of a cult, a blasphemer, somebody who is ultimately going to be murdered because of how crazy his ideas are, and they will bring shame to their family, and their family will disown them as a result of it. And so he knows if they're not willing to pick me over that, then they're only going to be in this for a little while, and it won't be a very positive experience. But the other reason he says this is because Jesus knows that ultimately, this, for most of the people in front of him, is really the greatest thing. This is the greatest good in their life. This is the thing that is the highest priority for them. And so because of that, following him is going to bump up against that again and again. Not just Jesus is saying, I'm anti-family. He's saying, I'm anti-hedonist family. And if this is what you are finding your identity in, if this is the way that, that, that everything has to work through 
because it's the part, the context of the group that you're in, then that means that you're going to deny me for it at some point. And so count the cost. What are you willing to pay? Essentially, what we realize then is that if we're going to follow Jesus, if we want to be a disciple, if we want to live in this upside-down kingdom, and we care about our family, we want that to continue to be like our life, a part of our life, as it is intended by God, then that means it must do what it was intended to do. And it can. Ultimately, family is intended to make us stronger, to mature us, not to simply satisfy us. If, that, if the people in our lives, if our community and our family is what we find our satisfaction in at the end of the day, then it is not serving the purpose that God intended for it, which is, I intend for these people to be in community with one another, and as they do that, they will grow. That they mature. That they move further along in following me. And so this upside-down, crazy way of looking at it is that at the end of the day, the goal is not satisfaction guaranteed. I was thinking about this this morning, and I was like, thinking like if, if I ended like interactions with my kids, you know, like, would you say that you were satisfied with this interaction? You know, how would you feel uh, about the service that you received today, right? Um, I'm glad that we have, that, that, they, that the, the house we got tricked into buying had stairs because uh, until they fall off or something, but um, we... Because we have a daughter, and our daughter's really good at running upstairs and slamming the door already. It's like, I don't know where she learned this, but it's like, it's perfect. It's perfect. When she gets her feelings hurt, and a lot of times, like, you don't know it happened. It just happened while we were sitting at the dinner table or something. She disappears, and it's like, I don't know where she went. And then you hear her, like, stomping up the stairs dramatically and just, like, slamming the door. And she's even learned how to, like, lay down on her bed, you know, like, with her face down. It's, like, very dramatic and, and perfect, right? She's going to get so good at it, I'm sure. Um, and I just like, I want, so I want to be the dad when like, as that's happening, I'm just like, and how satisfied were you with your experience today? You know, like, would you mind remaining on the line so we could ask you a brief survey to see if you were 100% satisfied with the treatment you received, right? Wouldn't it be so fun to have that guy be your dad? I mean, the idea of, uh, of, of, of family being about satisfaction we 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 can we can like laugh about that because we're like yeah that's not how that's not the word that i would use to describe family much of the time whether it's the family that raised us the family that we are developing and growing ourselves any family we're a larger part of but is it not true that this is ultimately the default goal of family is ultimately that it be a source of such profound satisfaction in our lives. And honestly, maybe even the best thing that we can do as we're raising kids and, and, and kind of growing families are, uh, you know, as, as, you're, as you're on that end of it, is that they are so pleased with the experience they had that they say, I want to do the exact same thing. That'd be the best. And yet, interestingly enough, we don't, we don't really just want them to stay there either, though, right? Because you kind of, at some point, want them to leave, you know? That's, that's a good part of it, too. But, but the truth is that family is, is intended to be a group and people and relationships that cause us to 
mature and grow stronger rather than just be happier. There's three things that family does to us. It reveals, it refines, and it redefines us. It reveals by showing us our true selves. You're like, yep, I don't need any explanation of that. Right? I could give you some anyway because it's... But you cannot really grow in Christ. You cannot grow as a disciple. You cannot grow as a person living in the flesh who is following God without an understanding of yourself. Now, it's not all about understanding yourself and just having total understanding of yourself, but you cannot really grow without seeing what's really going on within you. And is there a better place to see that than in those relationships and family? But it also refines us. These are often the hardest relationships and yet the most rewarding. These are the ones where we live out things like long-suffering and patience, compassion, forgiveness, and grace. And ultimately what they do is these relationships are the ones in which we see our need to ultimately be redefined completely. We fail in them. We fail in relationships time and again. We fail in family time and again. And we are left not, right, a good, strong Christian family is not an environment where everyone shows that they're so perfect that they don't need grace, that they don't need Christ, but instead it is an environment in which people are recognizing If anything, I don't deserve to be a part of this family. Now, that's not because you yell it at them. Don't yell that at them. But that we are left feeling in relationships like, I must be remade. I need some grace. And then that we show grace to one another. I apologized to my son the other night, and I'm going to talk about it because of how it makes me look when I say that. But... um, when I tell you why I had to, then you'll be like, what? But um, he, he got to take a bath in the big bathtub. Uh, he's definitely too big for this, so um, it's got to be the big one. And, and let him take a bath in the big bathtub. And then I just, you know, just let, let, left him alone because um, I'm a terrible parent, basically. And I'm, a, I'm foolish. And so, um, like, I'm pretty sure Curious George, the show Curious George, is like actually, like you look at it, it's not about this like monkey that, that is curious, it's about this guy in a yellow hat who has terrible discernment and is always leaving like a wild animal just alone in his house, you know? Like, oh, he'll be fine for the day, you know, with this new ink pen that I bought and some paper that he's learning how to write on, you know? Because mostly, because I come back and our entire bathroom's full of water and it's like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have just taken that opportunity to leave, you know, for a while. I didn't leave, leave, but you know, not being there. And so I came into the bathroom, and I, there's just there's water everywhere all over the floor, right? And from what I can tell, his explanation is he was pouring water on, like, the back of the tub, and it was just going back around behind him, you know, and filling up our bathroom. And so I immediately just started yelling, you know, because that's who I am. I just immediately started yelling, and I, like, threw towels on the ground. But the more I'm trying to clean it up, the more I'm realizing it is, like, everywhere. It is all the way to the carpet. It is all the way behind the toilet. And I'm like yelling and I'm getting really mad at him. I'm like, how could you do this? Like, this is so cool. Like, like this is, we can't do things like this. Like, there's consequences. We keep talking to you about this. It's just like yelling at him and getting really mad. And, um, and so eventually he gets out and everything. And, you know, he cries and he's sad. And, and then, you know, kinda, we kind of get over it. And we have the rest of the night. And it's kind of fine that he goes to bed. And I had to go into his room and I had to say, like, I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have yelled at you. Because, I mean, what he did was wrong but there's no reason that I should have gotten that mad at you and I shouldn't have yelled at you. And I feel really bad for the fact that I did that, you know? And it's pretty tough to do that. Um, And 
I didn't necessarily think that I would be doing that much as a parent, um, but I found myself doing that. And, and, and I asked myself, you know, like, you know, you, you maybe think like, well, is that a good thing, right? Like, should you be, you know, shouldn't you just be like, you know, firm all the time and saying like, no, what I do is right, don't worry about it. Um, but, you know, I apologized and he, he was pretty cool about it, you know, and he said he forgave me and he was like, said some cool stuff, you know, I'm still your biggest fan, I said that. And then um, he actually, what he said was, um, I'm your biggest fan until the end. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, you're my biggest fan until the end. And then as I was walking out of his room, he's like, what's the end? And I was like, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> I'll tell you really quick, then I'll turn the lights off. <laughs> Family is intended to be something that, that ultimately matures us and grows us, all people involved. This is not just about the youngest ones in the family. This is not just about the, 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 the people who are parents learning about their, their deficiencies as they go through the process of parenting. In fact, one of the things that we'll talk about as we talk about what it looks like to mature in an upside down way more fully when we talk, we're gonna talk about that next week, what maturity looks like in an upside down kingdom is the idea that maturity isn't even just the older that you get, the less uh, forgiveness or grace that you find that you often need. Um, or at least that you're recognizing that you're asking for those things. It's intended to make us stronger, to make us more mature, not just to satisfy us. But ultimately, it doesn't end there. You have this idea that, that family is it's we, right? It's not just about me. That family makes us stronger. We are stronger because of this thing, right? We're not just happy. We are a group of people who are just fulfilled by this thing. No, we're stronger, we're more mature, we're growing through this thing. But what then? Because there must be something else. There must be something beyond that. Otherwise, we are just growing to be what? To be, to be perfect? To be like, to be the best me that I can possibly be? Because ultimately, isn't that still, can't that still ultimately be about myself, right? And if it is about myself, if my family's about perfecting myself, then, then what happens if I feel like my family, I can't do that? You know, they're not helping me in that process. Uh, one quote that I read this last week that I think is good, uh, this author said, to be healthy, the family needs a mission or a purpose beyond itself. That mission is the kingdom of God. The family hurts itself when it makes itself the goal and object of Christian mission. We... What was the second point? Not perfect, but... Oh, no. Stronger. There we go. We are stronger, right? We are stronger for a purpose. We are stronger for something else outside of ourselves. There's a reason why. We want to be more mature and why we want to be better. One is for our Heavenly Father, ultimately to be free from sin in our lives. But he actually calls us as groups of people to do something that's bigger than just our quality of life. And if we feel like it's just about our quality of life, then we will always run into the same wall again and again. The Industrial Revolution was a huge turning point for families because before that occurred, most families had to work together for the most part to make it. 
Either families ran things like farms or they ran sort of businesses or companies and everyone had a job to do. And you worked together for this other common good that, that, and so the daily work of life brought you together rather than splitting you apart. At the very least, uh, people had to pitch in in order to make enough money to live and that often meant doing all kinds of different things and then pooling together what you had. Now, after the Industrial Revolution, that changed. And we have the ability now to survive many without living that way. Now, as easy as it would be to say, oh, well, that's the problem, right? The problem is industry and, and, and all this stuff and technology, and it's made life so different, and we should go back to that. No, because our nature as people is to take the freedom that we're given and to do what with it? To use it selfishly and to say, now then, the goal of this investment that we have together is for us all to go and be as good as we can be as individuals, right? And so we associate family time with leisure time. We associate family time as that thing that happens when you all get back together after you're done doing all the stuff that you do and you just relax together. You just don't do anything constructive together. But that's not how we were intended to function. We were intended to function by doing constructive things together. Because God's called us to a higher purpose. Just as a church family is called to be about something other than itself, our, our physical families, our biological families even, are called to be about something bigger than just ourselves and us getting by. We are all ultimately called to the mission that God's given us. He has called us to reach the lost. He has called us to proclaim his kingdom. Each and every one of us, he has given that task. And so a family is a banded together group of people, usually of all different generations and all different ages, seeking to do this thing together. And as we do this thing, we become more holy. We begin to see more and more of the sin in our lives and we repent of it and we become more like Christ. We actually make progress in becoming like Christ. But we also work together to reach those who have not yet been reached. So we, what's the second point? Are stronger. See, this is how you get people to do it, right? That's all I'm doing. I'm just asking you guys. I know it. I totally know it. We are stronger for a purpose. We are stronger, not just for ourselves, but for a purpose. Otherwise, we really are people who are investing in something, right? We, we, we approach faith and family this way. We say, well, I, I like that Jesus gives us a good way to live. He provides us with a good, selfless, noble, moral way of living. And so we become a part of that group of followers. We give our money. We give our time. We deny ourselves. But then we get to the point where we're called to not just do what brings pleasure and satisfaction to us and our families. And if at that point we turn away, because that is the most important thing to us, then what Jesus is saying is you are the person who built the house halfway and just left it there. You've, you've literally given all this stuff for nothing. I'm going to use it for stuff. He'll use it for his kingdom. But you've given this stuff, and where has it led you now? Ultimately, you're living like a poser. You're living as a person who says, I'm a part of something, but you're not. 
super lame. All right, let's pray.